Yeah, God who is uh, God, the God who is personal. Sometimes we feel like God's distant. Uh, this morning, I want to jump right into uh, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter one, verse one. <laughs> um, I hope that Ecclesiastes becomes one of your favorite little books in the Bible. It seems like every time I come to a book in the Bible, I, I, I say to myself, well, that's my favorite one. You know, because as we read our, the Bible, we read various books and we start studying them, God speaks to us and he, becomes, he just comes alive. He does touch us. He connects with us and we feel that way. But nevertheless, I hope that Ecclesiastes becomes one of your favorite books. It's a book of wisdom. Uh, notice I didn't say that Ecclesiastes is a book of theology, um, a study about God from the Greek word theos, which means God, theology. But it's a book of wisdom. And I say that because Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes, the God that we know does not enter into Solomon's time and space. It just doesn't, he's, he's, he is the God who is distant. So, so let's jump right in. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher. You'll notice there on the right, I have the Hebrew word kohelet. You don't know how to read those, those letters, perhaps, but it's kohelet, which is the word for preacher. Uh, kohelet means collector of sentences. And, and what, that, what this means is that kohelet, who we understand to be Solomon, we'll get that in a second. Kohelet, the preacher, is not the preacher of the gospel that we understand. It's not as if he's going to proclaim the God who enters into our world, as theologians like to use the, like to use the word, the eminence of God, the God who comes near, the God who comes close, the God who comes into our time and space. He's not going to be preaching about the good news of Jesus Christ. Rather, he is a collector of senses, which means that he's a wisdom lover. He loves wisdom. He, he wants to connect with God, but God is not entering into his world, at least at this time as he writes this book. Um, Colette's words are human words. It's the words of the preacher, not the words of God, as I made that clear a week ago. Uh, let's, let's, let's continue here in verse 1 where he says, he, does, he, def, he, de, uh, he identifies himself as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, for, if, for those of you who don't really know, it's possible that some of you don't know this this language right here, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. In the, in the history of, of Israel, there was a period of time around 900 years before Christ where the monarchy the, uh, came into being. So we started to see kings. So there were three kings in a united kingdom. The first one was Saul, and he was not a good king. He didn't work out so well. He was uh, about serving himself. And then there was David, and David is the model king in the Old Testament because David was the man after God's own heart. Although David had problems. David, if he had lived today, he would have, you know, he would have been impeached, right? I'm, it's true, right? I mean, here's a, here's a guy who murdered someone. He committed adultery and, and essentially, for all practical purposes, for all practical purposes, murdered this woman, Bathsheba's husband, the wife of Uriah. So as Uriah, he essentially murdered. He didn't technically murder him in terms of like take out the knife and go stab, stab, stab. 
but he sent him to the front line and then had the troops fall back so that he would be alone and he would be obviously killed, and that's what he wanted his design. So for all practical purposes, he murdered someone. So he wasn't the ideal king. Well, on one level, he was the ideal king, but he wasn't exactly what we would expect. But he loved God. He loved God. Anyone here occasionally like go into little time segments where you don't do so well with God? You kind of like, you know, there are times when you really love God and there are other times when it's like, uh, who's, who's that guy? Oh, yeah, God. Oh, God. Oh, I need to be with you. Do you ever, anyone, anyone here ever go through periods of time where you feel like you've kind of fallen away for a while? Anyone? Yeah? Um, it happens, doesn't it? But that's, that's not what should happen. But anyway, so I'm, I'm going on about this. The son of David is just Solomon. Solomon is the, is, uh, the, becomes the wisest man in the world. He becomes the wealthiest man in the world. I suppose this is for another, another sermon. I don't really want to spend time on that, but probably spent already quite a bit of time, maybe too much time on David. But the words of the preacher, Coelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Um, now, you might be saying to yourself right now, man, the preacher just jumped right into it. I'm not really that comfortable with that. I mean, isn't the preacher going to give some sort of like a story first or give a nice funny funny lead in, you know, maybe show a comic strip from Peanuts because he is old now, right? Young people don't read Peanuts. But you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's just, and, you gotta be, and you might be asking the question, why should I listen to this? I'll never forget my friend Heath Presley one time talking about preaching. And he, and he, and he said to me, man, if I don't have a, if I don't hear a reason why I should listen to the sermon within the first couple of minutes, I'm not interested. I'm like, you're a preacher. I mean, come on, really? Well, that's his, his view. So I, I, I hear that. And, uh, and so you might be asking the question, why should I listen to this? And I'll tell you why you should listen to this sermon today. You should listen to the sermon today because your neighbor's lives and perhaps even your own life are in the balance. They really are. Ecclesiastes is a critical book in terms of evangelism. Absolutely essential, critical. Now, people can come to Jesus, of course, without Ecclesiastes, but when people read through Ecclesiastes and start asking questions, what is this about? That is our opportunity to tell them what Ecclesiastes is about, and then it serves as a backdrop for the New Testament. Remember what I said last week about Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is the silence of God. God doesn't speak. Not the God that we know. He's just silent. Uncomfortable silence. A world devoid of God's voice. A world devoid of God's touch. This is a very important picture in a world that does not know God that does not have Jesus Christ in their lives. Let me share this with you. <clears throat> this is so important in the New Testament that people get connected to Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Ephesians 2. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles, those non-Jewish people, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, the Jewish people referred to Gentiles, people who were not Jews, as the uncircumcised ones, which is made, by the, uh, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, so sometime prior, you were at that time 
separated from Christ. The whole world is not saved. Paul is not a universalist. Anyway, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, which tells us a lot about the church, doesn't it? I could be preaching on this. I'm not going to, but that tells us a lot about the church, doesn't it? That somehow the church is a part of Jewish history. That we are not alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but anyway, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. What a statement. What a statement about the world. What a statement about those who are not in Jesus Christ. That was where we were. But how are they going to come to Jesus if they don't come face to face with their emptiness, their shallowness? Um, No hope in the darkness of night, feeling only the wind, the empty wind. Some of you are old enough to remember the folk singer Donovan. Uh, he didn't hang out with really my crowd, so to speak, but nevertheless, um, some of you may remember a famous song. Uh, they, anyone here ever watched The Wonder Years? I know, it's really dating me. Yes! There's this one episode. It's my favorite episode. There's one episode where Donovan's song is used at the end, and it's very touching. Anyway, it goes like this. this. In the chilly hours and minutes of uncertainty, I want to be in the warm hold of your loving mind to fill you all around me and to take your hand along the sand. Ah, but I might as well try and catch the wind. I'm brutalizing this song. It's okay. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm famous for brutalizing songs. It actually gets you to listen to it a little bit, you know? When sundown pales the sky, I want to hide a while behind your smile, and everywhere I'd look, your eyes I'd find. For me to love you now would be the sweetest thing, would make me sing, ah, but I might as well try and catch the wind. Isn't that just beautiful? Amelia's over here just like, she's crossing her arms, and she's saying, this is incredible, you know? Pastor, would you sing to me every night before I go to bed? That's what she's thinking right now. <laughs> well, it just goes diddy, 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 all those diddy things. And then he says, when rain has hung the leaves with tears, I want, a, want you near to kill my fears, to help me leave all my blues behind, for standing in your heart is where I want to be and long to be. Ah, uh, but I might as well try and catch the wind. Catching the wind. That is our world. Emptiness, nothingness, wind. Um, The world needs hope. That hope comes from experience, from God entering into their world. Solomon, Colette, Solomon, whatever you want to refer to him as, Solomon is trying very hard, like Donovan, trying very hard to be touched. Um, But he's only catching the wind. And and he he doesn't need a lot of women you know, being a man, he doesn't need a lot of women in his life. He's got plenty of women. He's got more women than he needs. He needs to be touched by God. He needs to know the God who is personal. Oh, I had this wonderful slide here about catching the wind. I thought that was kind of worked out. That gave you a visual, but that's okay. All right? God is personal, and we need 
that God. How appropriate that we spent time this morning. That was the Lord, wasn't it? That Chrissy led us in this time of just sitting in the Father's lap and connecting with the Father, seeing the Father's eyes. Um, we need that God. I know I need that God. There are times in my life when I'm, I'm, I don't feel like I'm connecting and I want to connect. I guess that's what worship is for. It helps. Corporate worship helps. Private, personal worship helps a lot as well. Driving in the car, listening to the radio. You ever do that? And, then, and Christian music comes on. I listen to way too much talk radio, sports and stuff. I shouldn't do that so much. But there are times when I just listen to the radio and the Christian song and the Lord just speaks to me and I, just, I need that connection. I need that connection. We need a personal God. Uh, we, it, without the personal God, we are left with a couple of other possibilities. We're, we're left with the God of deism, which is the God who set things in motion. You know, the, the whole enlightenment period from the 18th century. Remember those days? 17th and 18th century enlightenment. Probably don't remember those days. Probably weren't around. But anyway, so, so the God of deism, it sets the world in motion, but you can't connect with him. He's off on the golf course doing his thing, or maybe he's on the, on the river fishing, whatever he's doing. He's, and he's not with you, the God of deism. Or maybe the God of Islam, the God who is unknowable. You know what the only thing you can know about God in Islam is this will. You know, I don't know about you, but if that's who God is, I'm a miserable, miserable person. You see? Because I need the God who is personal with me. I need the God who is love. I need the God who says, forgive them for they know not what they do. I need the God that reaches out and touches me. I need the God who reaches out and touches the leper who looks at my sin and says, nothing's going to get between you and me. We were designed for this God. I find it very intriguing. I'm doing okay on time. You like to, like to hear the word, don't you? So, so turn with me for a moment to Luke chapter 24. I find this very intriguing. This is, this is the after the resurrection of Jesus. And this is so helpful for me. I can't tell you the number of times in my life when I thought of this scene. And I remember, yes, God really does desire to touch my life. A lot of times we read this scene in, in Luke 24 and we think of it as, as that which, is, which verifies our faith, which it does. But I think it does more than that. Verse 36, after the resurrection, after the walk to Emmaus, the famous story, verse 36, the disciples were in Jerusalem, and it says this, as they were talking about these things, in other words, Jesus' appearances, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Don't you love that? Like the first words out of his mouth to these people who had, you know, been very disturbed because of the surrounding events. It had just been crucified, and they actually left him. They left him on the cross. They, they just got out of there. The first thing he says is, peace to you. It's like what Christy was singing this morning and what she was saying about being in the Father's lap, and he's not condemning us. He's loving us. Jesus comes and says, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you, why, do you, why do you have doubts in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Two of the best words of all Scripture come next. 
touch me. Do you feel comfortable touching Jesus? Are you too scared of him? Jesus says to the disciples, touch me. Yeah. And why do you doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. Oh, I'm sorry, I already messed up on that. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Well, then he eats breakfast with them. Eats fish. Another one of my favorite things about Jesus is that it seems to it seems as though that we're going to have food in heaven. Right? We're going to get to eat with Jesus. We're going to touch Jesus, the God who is personal. We need that uh, when we when we experience uh, someone on a personal level. You know, we, we typically begin with the handshake. And those of you who are young, I'm just going to give you a little word of advice. This is more of a motivational thing or something to think, think through. You know, when you give a handshake. I got, God gave me small hands. They're really small. I've never really liked them. My wife thinks they're just wonderful. I don't get that. You do. You always tell me that my, you love my hands. I'm like, my hands are just tiny. They're small. And I got surgeon hands. What am I doing as a preacher? But, but I have surgeon hands, and they're, they're small. But nevertheless, when I shake someone's hand, you know, it's like, come on, Amelia. I mean, tell me what that handshake's like. It's firm, yes. He says that's firm. That's just a little word of advice. Firm handshake, okay? Don't give the wimpy handshake. Anyway, that's, that's just my opinion, okay? But nevertheless, we start, so often we start our relationship with someone with a handshake, but over time we begin to trust the person and we kind of share a few things, get to know a person a little bit and so forth. We move into a hug. Do you know that hugs are really important? Now some of you are thinking, I'm not touchy-feely, I'm not going to hug anybody. Okay, fine, fine. But hugs are really important. And you know what? I actually believe that most of us, maybe not everyone, because some people, some people are not this way, although they, their minds are, their brains are different, but most of us, I think, are designed to have hugs. I hope it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. Uh, I'm going to share something with you. Do you have time this morning to listen to me preach? Okay, good. Okay, yeah, I like, I like that enthusiasm, Larry. Okay, look at this, look at this. Could a hug, this, this actually was written a few years ago by Stacy Colino in U.S. News and World Report. And she said, this is what she says, could a hug a day keep the doctor away? The answer may be a resounding yes, because helping you feel close and connected to people, see we're talking about being close and connected to each other and of course God, which is most important, but, but uh, helping you feel close and connected to people you care about, it turns out that hugs can bring a host of health benefits to your body and mind. Believe it or not, a warm embrace might even help you avoid getting sick this winter. I love that. It goes on a little bit more here. In a 2015 study involving 404 healthy adults, researchers from Carnegie Mellon University examined the effects of perceived social support and the receipt of hugs on the participants' susceptibility to developing the common cold after being exposed to the virus. People who perceived greater social support were less likely to come down with a cold. And the researchers calculated that the stress-buffering effects of hugging explain 32% of that beneficial effect. Even among those who get a, got a cold, those who, uh, those who felt greater social support and received more frequent hugs had less severe symptoms. That's incredible to me. Like, we're designed to hug. I like hugging you. I was talking, for those on podcasts, I just said that to my wife, okay? But nevertheless, 
we, we, are, we, we really are designed, we're designed to be close to each other. We are, you know? Um, okay. Uh, oh, I got one more thing I'm going to share with you, and I've shared this with the church before. I'm going to do this. Check, it, check, it, check out the early church here. This is what Paul says. Four times. I'm not telling you to do this. You can stick with hugging. That's fine. I'm not going to be doing this, but look at this. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Romans 1 Corinthians 16, 20, greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. The early church loved each other. Loved each other. They were close to each other. I, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, they gave each other hugs. They really did. You know why? Because God, it sounds so touchy-feely, but truly, it's, it's true. God really does desire to hug us. And I think Jesus is going to hug us. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not even going to just look into Jesus' eyes. Well, I'm going to fall at his feet and kiss his feet. But nevertheless, he's probably going to say, hey, come on, get up here. I'm going to stand up, and he's going to hug me. I'm going to hug him. Give him a big one. It's like, yeah, we did it. You know? I'm serious. Do you feel that way about Jesus? Yeah, we did it. We did it because Jesus did it in me. He did it for me, but he's with me, participating with me. We did it. I'm telling you. If you think that your faith is all about you and your effort and what you do and you do, you got the wrong God. God is with us. Come on. He's with us. All right. I've really gone on a lot about that. Okay. Uh, I could, actually, I could stop the sermon right there, but I'm not going to. Because right, there's more to say, more to say. Okay, so let's, let's go back to Ecclesiastes here. All right? Um, oh, I put that up there. That was for my benefit. They're not going to worry about that. That's, the, that's my little slide that says the point is clear. We're made for hugs. Okay? Brings healing and transformation. Let's go to Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes. Oh, boy. Here we go. Verse 2 now. Van- World's longest sermon on the first verse of Ecclesiastes. That's kind of what that was going on, right? Oh, well. Verse one, uh, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, now, if you just you know, were just a good Bible student, you might notice how many times the word vanity is used in this, in this verse. Five times. It's pretty important. Pretty important that we know what vanity is. So, so what is vanity? And here the word, it's a noun. It's a noun, and it, indi- it can indicates the emptiness of wind. That's really the idea. Okay? It, it does mean emptiness, technically speaking, empty, but it's connected with wind. The emptiness of wind. You can't get your arms around it. Whatever it is, all is vanity. And so we can could, we could put it this way. I wrote this, but wind of winds, says the preacher. Wind of winds. All is wind. Now, if you're a good biblical scholar, you know that wind is a very important word for describing God because the Spirit of God is described as wind. Genesis 1, 1. Yes, I've been taking a little extra Hebrew. 
Baruach Elohim at a hefet al penei to home. Baruach, Baruach. That's right there. The Spirit of God. Baruach, the wind of God. Ruach means wind in Hebrew. Baruach, the wind of God, was hovering, hovering over the face of the waters. And what does the wind of God do? The wind of God transforms the world. The wind of God moves upon the world. The wind of God takes away our chaos in this world, takes away your chaos and my chaos, and changes the world around us and changes our own hearts. The wind of God is a creator and a protector and one who, 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 who brings peace into the world, the Ruach of God. God is wind and God is dynamic, but this wind is a very different word in Genesis 1 one now one two than it is in Ecclesiastes chapter one. In Ecclesiastes one, it's the word is hovel in he, in Hebrew, and it does mean emptiness of wind. Whereas the ruach is really associated with the essentially the heaviness, the power of God. So we have a very different idea here going on in terms of the wind of God. Now you will remember with me, I hope, that in John chapter four. Jesus talks about God being wind also. John 4, he's talking to the woman at the well, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is ruach. It's pneuma in the Greek because it's a Greek passage here because it's the New Testament. But God is spirit or wind, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit spirit, and truth. The great thing about the New Testament, I'm trying to drive home the fact that the New Testament brings us something very different than the book of Ecclesiastes. The New Testament brings into us, brings to us the power and the weight and the heaviness and the experience of a personal God. And here's the remarkable thing, and this is one of the things I wanted to say this morning. Whereas Ecclesiastes, the writer says, hey, you know, wind of wind, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All is wind. The New Testament says, actually, um, I'm going to give you a different kind of wind. I'm going to fill that wind up with me. And that's the difference, right? That's the difference between those who try to seek for God but reject the truth because they're seeking for God on their own terms. God must be like this because I've already set, set out what God must be. I still have to be in charge. That's what people say. I still have to know my stuff. I have to be in charge. i got to have my little world. I'm not willing to give up my life, but I want to know who this God is, but I don't want to give my life to him. And there are people out there who love the intellectual world but are absolutely bent on not giving God their hearts. God says, I have to have your heart. I have to. And so God gives us not the vanity of vanities, wind, emptiness that we see in Ecclesiastes 1-2, but he gives us himself. And I want to spend a little bit of time on this. Not too much, but a little bit, because the, 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 the uh, kids and I have been going through uh, Acts, and uh, they're awesome. The kids are awesome. They're great. I'm like, you're the best. Okay? And uh, we, we talked about this, so this will be repeat for you all, you know, but this will be good for the congregation. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, this is the disciples, they asked him, Lord, that's talking to Jesus here, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to him, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, the personal, powerful God, has come upon you. Unembodied personal power, right? Right, kids? Unembodied personal power? We talked about that? Okay. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, and that's key, obviously I highlighted the word heaven, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels, of course. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now look at Acts chapter 2. We're going to see this, this inc- these incredible words. When the day had Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from where? From heaven. Why does it come from heaven? Because where Jesus is. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus. And in fact, in the book of Acts, it's actually, we're actually told at one point that it's the Spirit of Jesus who is what? Personal. It's the one who touches you, man. It's the one who loves you. It's the one who cares for you. The Spirit of God is Jesus. Jesus, is, there's a connection there. It's the one who's with you. Suddenly there came from heaven, from Jesus, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Why? Because God is God of power. He's Actually, the Old Testament loves to emphasize the fact that he's heavy, gadol, heaviness of God, the weightiness of God, a mighty rushing wind from heaven, and it filled, all, filled the entire house where they were sitting. Everyone got it. All those who had been following Jesus, all those who were in the house, all those who had been praying, all those who were seeking him with the right heart received it. In verse 3, and divided tongues as a, as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Wouldn't you want to be there? Guess what? The Holy Spirit comes to us. And they were all filled with the wind of God. The Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Why? So that the world could come to know Jesus Christ. Because guess what? The world is stuck in Ecclesiastes. It's the emptiness, the nothingness, the darkness, the silence. And guess what? God gives the Holy Spirit so that you will not be silent. Because Jesus is speaking through you and through me. And he's calling all of us into that personal, deep, touching relationship with him. I don't know where you are, but I do know this. I know where God is on this. I know that he wants more than anything in the world to reach out and touch you. If you're someone who has sensed, man, God is just so distant from me. I feel separated from God at times. God doesn't seem personal. He seems just like this, this abstract you know, list of things. You know, we could talk about God's omnipresence and God's you know, 
ver- you throw out the words, throw all the, the theological words you want. Just, just list them. God feels like a list of theological words. But I'm not experiencing him. If that's you, this message is for you. This is God speaking to you. He doesn't want to be the God of, of a theological list. He wants to be a God who touches you. That's why he touched the lepers. That's why he had let the disciples come and touch him. That's why he died. That blood dripping from him. Go ahead. Touch me, Jesus says. Touch me today. Because I love you. And I'm not going to reject you. Would you put your heads down right now? I just want you to know that God is here. Our personal God is here. If you want to experience the touch of Jesus Christ in your life, maybe you feel like you've kind of been going your own way for a while, or maybe you just need to be filled up. Maybe you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you want to know Jesus as your Savior, or you just want to be closer to him, and you want me to pray for you this week, would you just raise your head and I'll be praying for you? I know all of you. You have absolutely, absolutely amen to that. Amen. 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 Absolutely. I love all of you. Yes. Of course. Yes, 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 yes. You got it. Of course. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Lord Jesus, you've got some great friends here <laughs> because they love you, at least want to love you, and they want to know you, they want to experience you. Would you touch them? And you would you remind them Monday through Saturday this week <laughs> that you're only a reach away. They only need to call on your name and you will be with them. Increase the faith of this body. May we experience through faith the power of the resurrection and the dynamic power of the giving of the Holy Spirit so that we would be new people and powerful people in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.